Christopher Cleveland, Cleveland. Uh, we've already been talking, but I'll say welcome again, just because people will be hearing this just now. Uh, as we get going, could you just kind of briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Christopher Cleveland. Uh, my uh, background is in uh, Reformed theology and scholastic theology. Uh, my uh, dissertation was on the influence of Thomism in John Owen, and I did that at the University of Aberdeen, where I studied with Dr. John Webster. And before then, I went to Westminster Seminary in Dallas, and then Boyce College before then. Wait so it's been sort of a, a long, fun ride, as they say, what a, a so, long, strange trip it's been. Oh, oh so there's a couple of things that just popped. So, so Boyce, so Baptistic. Westminster yes. Pedobaptistic, but then you said Westminster Dallas, which I don't think I've ever heard of. Yeah, but, so from in the early 2000s, uh, Westminster Philadelphia founded a campus in Dallas, and they were accredited through the Westminster, the Philadelphia campus. Philadelphia campus. And one of the people who taught there at first was Dr. David McWilliams, who's a pastor in Lakeland here nearby in Florida. Uh, but then he returned back to his church here and Sinclair Ferguson took over and taught there for several years. And I began to hear Dr. Ferguson preaching and teaching. And I just really felt led to go study there because uh, I loved, he was te teaching on Christ in the Old Testament at Park City's Presbyterian Church. And it was just so good and so clear, uh, you know, just walking through scripture saying, this is where Christ is here. This is where Christ is here. And so it was really cool. And so I, I went there to study and that's where I got uh, my master's degree. So is the campus still in Dallas for Westminster or is there one? It's not. So sadly what <laughs> happened, they, they broke from Westminster. It was amicable, but they, uh, they became Redeemer Seminary. Oh, and then sadly, Redeemer went under, and sort of from the ashes of that, uh, uh, RTS has a campus there now, which I believe is headed by Dr. Mark McDowell, who is uh, an, a friend of mine who also studied with John Webster. So I don't know too much about that campus, but um, if it'd be interesting to talk with him more about it. So, so was there like a theological difference? Would you say, or was it just? You mean what, as far as why uh, they between uh, the Dallas campus and the Philadelphia campus? Uh, no, not not at all. My understanding was just that uh, Dallas was so it was just so far away. They just needed to be independent. Mm -hmm. um, that was the biggest thing. Um, huh. That I don't know too much about the details. So much as just they they were headed in a positive direction, uh, breaking away, and then it just it didn't work out. So. So, hmm. so, so you're Baptistic, Pedobaptistic, and but then you went to Aberdeen, which is right. Yeah, I don't know, Anglican, not really, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, how did you? Okay, so, so you studied with John Webster, so you must have known who John Webster was. Right, right. Um, where did it you? Was sort of, uh, sort of a long way of how I ended up working with them. I I knew he was, of. Uh, a big name and I submitted my thesis proposal and I ended up being taken by Dr. Nicholas Thompson, who is a Reformation scholar 
And so he was my first supervisor, but he left after his first year to return to his native New Zealand. And he said, if I don't leave now, I'll never have the opportunity to teach in New Zealand again, because one of the two church history program or positions in the entire country came open. Uh, so he, he returned to New Zealand and he, Dr. Webster graciously took me on uh, my second year. Hmm. And that was a wonderful experience. It was just great working with him. He was such a kind man and had just such a depth of knowledge uh, that it was really a blessing. Well, it seems to me that John Webster is probably the best Protestant theologian of the early 21st century. Now, he, he passed away, was it 2016, maybe? That's right. So did you finish before that happened? I did, yeah. I completed in 2011, end of 2011. What's interesting, my brother ended up studying with Dr. Webster as well. And he also studied John Owen uh, with him. And my brother was one of his last students. Hmm. uh, And he had just, he he was just about to thank Dr. Webster for all of his help and completing his PhD when he found out, got Mm. news of his death. So he, he graduated in 2016. So he graduated, but but did he defend his dissertation before Webster died? Yes, he did. Uh Oh, so he was really at the end of uh, Webster's um, teaching. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So uh, probably not a lot of people know John Webster. So I I would say, I said to you, I think he's the greatest 20, early 21st century Protestant theologian, but Right. I bet almost nobody knows who he is, who are not academics, I should say. Right. And part of the reason is um, he was an academic, but he was kind of a warm writer, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he wrote on almost present topics for the current day. He wrote on uh, Christology, Trinitarian Theology, all that kind of stuff, Providence, I guess hermeneutics. Um, And a lot of people who are really influential today in our circles, I think, kind of have been influenced by him. Like, wasn't Kevin Van Hooser a student or at least somehow influenced by him as well? I believe he was influenced by him. I don't think he was a student of his. I want to say he studied with Robert Jensen, but I could be way off on that. Yeah, I don't actually know. So maybe just kind of, uh, so what what was your experience with John Webster like? Like maybe just kind of explain a little bit like what he was like. I just think people might be interested because he's such a significant person in in our recent history. Yeah, and again, he was just a wonderful man. I, I'll, I remember the very first time I met him, it was the theology seminar that they had, and they, I, I showed up and, you know, introduced myself with, along with all the other first-year PhDs, and, uh, and he came up to me afterward and told me he was very interested in what I was studying. And I wasn't, you know, his student at the time, but I, from that, I could already see he was, this was a very nice man, a very kind man. And that's probably one of the biggest things people uh, wouldn't know about him, but that I feel is important to tell. He was such a kind man and mm. a gracious man. And uh, he was also a very funny man as well. He, um, when you had speakers come in, uh, whenever someone would say something that he disagreed with, you would see the look on his face and you knew he, he was, wasn't going to let that slide without bringing some sort of uh, 
correction in our, our conversation in. Uh, but it just is profound depth of knowledge. You know, whenever I would come up on a new topic, I would say, okay, this is the issue I'm dealing with, um, such as infused habits. And he said, okay, this is uh, the standard work on the subject. And so he'd be able to, to point me this work, this work, this work. And mm. uh, I'm so thankful for that. So you mentioned infused habits. I think that might be a, our segue into, into John Owen and his appropriation of Thomas Aquinas, because I think Thomas Aquinas makes good use of infused grace and infused habits, all that kind of language. Right. Um, so, does, so does some Protestants, by the way. I don't think that's necessarily an Aquinas thing alone, but he, he for sure does. So maybe just big picture before we get into that is like, how would someone like John Owen... 17th century, eventually congregationalist. I guess he was earlier too. Uh -huh. uh, like, how did he view someone like Thomas Aquinas? Like, did he even have access to Thomas Aquinas's works? I mean, probably at Oxford he did, but what was that relationship? Yeah, and he he would have viewed Thomas in general positively, especially as a younger man. Uh, in his display of Arminianism, he was very Thomistic. And you could tell he had been trained uh, very strongly in Thomas's thought. And he would have seen Thomas as a, an excellent church father who was, unfortunately, in some areas, mired in papism. But um, for the most <laughs> Does part... Does he say that? Uh, he, he almost com comes close a couple times. But for the most part, he, he's almost always positive about Thomas. But... Um, but certainly about the medieval era, he does talk about, uh, some of the darkness of that era, quote unquote, if you will. Um, but he, he would have viewed him positively. He, he did view him positively. He, I don't know that he says anything particularly negative about Thomas in any of his works. Um, but he uh, viewed him as a valuable resource, as sort of like this is the guy to go to when I'm looking for how to systematically approach a topic. And you sort of see that when he's working out some of these detailed theological issues. As far as infused habits, it, it's very interesting to see the parallels between Owen and Thomas because Thomas coming as he was in the 13th century dealing with the uh, newer reception of works by Aristotle, he was very concerned at defending divine grace from the idea that, the Aristotelian idea, that every habit can be obtained by repeated action. And he wanted to say, no, there are certain things that only come by the action of God. The, the human being cannot will themselves to obtain faith, hope, and love by their own power. Uh, but these virtues are infused into us, given to us by God alone. And Owen is doing something very similar, coming as he was uh, it, arguing against the Arminians and certain Anglican aspects of thought who really wanted to just emphasize the ability of human power and moral in conversion and that conversion consisted of a reformation of life this idea that 
you what you just need to do is just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better just do the right thing just do it and owen is saying no you can't do it because you need the power of god to the holy spirit to infuse grace into your soul and only in that way will you be able to uh be changed and uh only in that way will you be converted and able to follow god in obedience it might be useful just kind of like pull back a little bit to and talk about infused grace and habitual grace just like what those things are like i'll probably right. say it wrong but i mean the idea i think is infused grace is similar to what we mean by imputation something's just given to us where habitual thing is that that what you gain through life but you're kind of saying that john owen well maybe you could put in your own words but john owen sort of um he talks about habits being infused which is right. at least to me a unique understanding so could you kind of just like maybe back out a little bit define those terms and then then explain how infused habits works yeah so the idea is that uh under the classic and aristotelian idea there's you develop a habit through repeated action you like if you say you want to exercise you do the same thing over and over and to get really good at it say like a gymnast who does a particular move he gets really good at it by doing it over and over and over. And the argument that Thomas and Owen made was that, no, there's some habits that are given to us by God. And we have this ability to love others, not by practicing love uh, again and again and again, but because God gives us that ability to love. And suddenly we have this capacity to perform this action that we were never able to do before. Uh, we have the capacity to trust God that we never had before because God has now given it to us. We have the capacity to hope in God that we never had before. And so that's really the idea. It's the ability to do something and the practice of it in our life and heart, this way of life. Um, that comes only from God. And that's, that's really the idea in there. Okay. So this is an interesting thing. So um, if, so if you're an Arminian, at least according to John Owen, you, you might say that you have a natural capacity in order to uh, repeat certain habits of grace and those habits okay. of grace would to some degree Merit's probably the wrong word, but with some degree, uh, be within your, within your natural power. Where, okay. where Owen would say, it's not necessarily in your natural power. It needs to be infused into you, certain habits of grace, like the theological virtues or something like that. Right. At which time then you can perform them? Is that kind of the distinction? Uh, that, that really gets at it, yeah. Um, and the idea that that we can do it, we just need to do it. And Owen made the point that there's a distinction between a physical, physically being able to do it and morally being able to do it. And what a lot of the um, Arminians and Anglican thinkers of his day were arguing for is that what we needed was a moral reformation. We need to be persuaded we needed to more want to do it. And Owen was saying, no, we need to be physically able to do it. And we cannot 
physically perform this action of faith, hope, and love uh, until God works in our soul. And Owen, to be clear, Owen goes further than faith, hope, and love. He's talking about all spiritual graces. And uh, I use faith, and hope, and love particularly because that's what Thomas uses. But that's the connection there, that, that we need God's Holy Spirit to infuse these graces into our soul so that we may uh, perform these actions of love and obedience and holiness. Interesting. So the, um, would he use the word infusion, do you think, for, um, I, I guess what people call like initial justification today? Is he, is he okay with infusion for that kind of like, uh, description? Right. And that's a good question. In his work on justification, Owen is very clear that infusion is not related to justification. And hmm. he makes the distinction, strong distinction between infusion and imputation. Oh, really? And, so okay, what, what is the distinction? Because in my mind, they're synonymous, but maybe I just don't understand them. Well, infusion is, is an internal thing that God works in us to change us, to transform us. So that would include regeneration and sanctification. So God begins the change in our soul and makes us into, conforms us to the image of the Son justification is the legal, the forensic, the judicial act of God declaring us righteous according to the righteousness of Christ. So it's external. It's not something internal. Mm. And Owen's point is that we need both. We need both an internal change and a change of our status before God, our legal status, because mm. we are condemned legally before the divine judge. And so we need that to be changed. We need both God to declare us righteous and to actually make us righteous. And his argument against the Roman Catholic teaching is that, uh, that they don't get that forensic, that legal part, and you need both. And actually, now that I do think of it, the one part where he does criticize Thomas, he does say Thomas is of no use to us on justification. And that's the point there, because Thomas doesn't have the category for imputation. And uh, that's the real problem. So in Owen's view, if I understand this right, imputation, uh, like justification rather, is the the legal status, where infusion is the renovation of the internal inner man. That's right. And the infusion is the, the thing by which we can have habitual virtue. Right. So, okay, the habit is the effect of the infusion, and infusion is the inner reality where justification, maybe imputation with it, is the external declaration that we're just. That's right. Yeah. So, um, how does he, like, maybe this is like a, maybe he doesn't answer this question, but does he view the, the declaration and the making just realities, um, like, have a coincidence at the same time, or are they temporally distinct, or how does that work? Well, I don't know that he addresses the question of temporal connection between the two. Um, but he he wants to ensure that they are separate, but both given uh, by God in the gift of salvation. As part of the, the whole gift of salvation, as part of union with Christ. And that 
as far as the the temporal like you know when it comes uh where i he he's not as concerned with that question hmm. that's interesting I, I think there's so at least today we talk about sometimes uh you're like legally declared just, and then you like later on you become just. But for whatever reason today, I feel like we really want to distinguish the legal declaration and the being made just. I don't really see that though, even in reformed writers. Um, they might distinguish them logically, of course, but like it's both things happen. Um, it's interesting. It seems like he's kind of making the same point. Um, so, okay, so he does value Thomas Aquinas. He does have critiques of Aquinas uh, with reference to justification. Specifically, it's interesting that you say that, that Aquinas doesn't really have a um, forensic category, uh-huh. which I guess makes sense. One of the interesting parts, um, at least for me, if I think about Aquinas, is like it's so easy to like, well, he doesn't have that category, which he doesn't, which is true, I think. And then to say like, well, maybe we shouldn't read Aquinas. But I mean, the point is that category hadn't been formed yet. You know what I mean? In the theological right. discourse. And he does, Thomas actually does address at one point, he uh and I, I can't remember exactly which question it was. I believe it was in Prima Pars somewhere. But he does ac- address the question of imputation, but he doesn't accept it because he, he wants to say that justification consists in the infusion of love. Um, and, and that was very fascinating to me that he, he addressed it, but sort of dismissed it. But it, it was not as you could tell it wasn't as big of a category for him or as big mm-hmm. of an objection. Mm-hmm. But I, I just strongly believe that's what Paul is doing in the book of Romans, uh, particularly in chapters four and five, talking about the, um, we are just oh, the, the legal. Five. Yeah. Yeah. In the legal sense. So. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, Aquinas is interesting too, because he lives in a world where all the institutions are like means of grace. So you think about him writing, like his whole view is grace, 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 but we don't live in his world. And so for him, he's like, look, he's like looking at every institution in the medieval Europe that he's in and the way the cosmos works and sees everything as a means of of furthering grace. Uh I think the challenge for us is we don't live in that world anymore. And so it doesn't sound too grace gracious. It's like, well, okay. So you have to do all the, the Eucharist and all these kinds of things. Right. Um, but it is interesting. I think the Reformed uh, ended up using them pretty well. And uh-huh. then they made sense of the new world they're in. There, there are other areas, right, where, where Owen is influenced by Aquinas. I think you, me- you mentioned uh, right. Nitty Christology. Um, so the, I guess the Actus Purus is what people call it, right? The right. fancy yeah. Latin word. Um, so does John Owen then have a view of God that is similar to Aquinas? Is he a, a classical theist, so-called? I don't know if that's a good category. That's what people yeah. use today. Yeah, very much so. I mean, he's very strongly in that uh, tradition, and he—you uh, really see it in his work, *Display of Arminianism*, his first work, which he wrote when he was 26, hmm. and that he is using that classical theism, those categories, uh, to argue against Arminian thought. And what's really interesting about it is that just as Thomas argued for God, for the existence of God as the unmoved mover, as the one who must be pure act, who must be without change. um, Owen does the same thing. He makes the same arguments 
with regard to providence and predestination. So one of Thomas's one aspect of Thomas's five ways is that uh, everything it, that is in motion must have had uh, a mover to it. There must have been something to move it. And that goes back to one unmoved mover. The idea there is similar to what Owen argues against the Arminians, that there must be one unmoved mover in God, who is God. And, and that's with reference to predestination, to spiritual life. We cannot have that spiritual life of fellowship with God unless God moved us to trust in him and, and gave us that ability, just like what we were just talking about. Uh, and he also talks about that with respect to divine providence. And these are things that, that really do have their origin in Thomas as well, uh, particularly in Prima Pars, I believe, question 109. But um, that's the same idea there. And so it's, it's something that he uses there that's based in the doctrine of God as pure act. God must be pure act alone, while all creatures have, are a mixture of act and potency, which, of course, means that creatures have potential for different things, but they're not, they don't have that perfection actualized in the same way that God does. Right. right. Um, so, yeah, so the act of potency. So, I guess it might, it might be useful to say, like, those are kind of, uh, insider theological terms. So potency is the, is the power to right. accomplish something. Actualizing it is what you can do. God is pure right. act because he has no potentiality. He's always, he always is what he is. He's not potentially right. going to be good because he is good. He's not potentially going to be bad. That's the wrong way to put it. Uh, but you know what I mean? Yeah, anything like that. Right. Um, so, so and, and this is kind of a standard reformed way of talking about God, a standard medieval way, a standard patristic mm-hmm. way. And I would, say that i think the scripture itself it lays the groundwork where this is a necessary conclusion from the god that's presented in the bible yeah absolutely uh, he's not going to be anything other than he is and i think there's some hints of it i mean you probably would agree in, in exodus 3 f- verse 14 yeah it's absolutely. hinted at i don't think it's as scholastically stated but it is god reveals himself as he who is or he who will be right and you you also see it in passages like um Acts 17, uh, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and the idea that in him we live, move, and have our being, and in him all things consist, he upholds all things by the mm-hmm. word of his power. All those passages are point us to that fact that, um, that everything that is comes from God, and we cannot act apart from his will. And what's interesting, as far as just going back to the actual nature of God, Owen uses these classical categories to argue against the Sassinians because the Sassinians represented in England by John Biddle really came up with some weird stuff (laughs) and argued at one point for God having a physical body. Oh, so our Owen argued, look, this is impossible because that would make God corporeally limited and he would not be a pure act. He would be put, potential and he would have potential to be greater than he he is um touching that and sell my argument there but um but yeah he he's very much a classical theologian uh with respect to the doctrine of god and so that's absolutely what he argues for 
That's interesting. So, so Sinians, so Sinianism is a weird thing in that it almost feels like a wax nose because Sinians have just all sorts of beliefs, but right. it seems to me that part of it is, it includes a very literal way of reading the Bible. Like obviously right. the anthropomorphist uh, vision of God has been around before, but it's basically you read the Bible too literally. So you see God, well, it says he has a nose and a hand. Uh-huh. Well, therefore he has a nose and a hand. You're like, well, right. yeah, but it also describes him as a, as a, as a, a mother hen. <laughs> it's all sorts of ways. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe you could just speak to this. Like, so what is going on with Socinianism in England that, that requires John Owen to be able to, to write these sorts of things. And now, and also, um, and this might be a clarifying point. Is the Arminianism that he's talking about really Socinianism or is it two separate things? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because Arminianism really came about in part because Reformed theologians started reading Socinians and that happened in the Netherlands and particularly with uh, Arminius and then it got sort of out of control and so there was always a connection there and they always wanted to deny the more heretical aspects um owen you know a lot of people have criticized owen in display of arminianism for failing to represent his arminian foes properly i am more of the idea that he, he actually did so pretty well in that work um he he was probably a bit overzealous, but I felt like he still picked up on a lot of the ideas they were they were thinking. And so he, he might have, like I said, he might have been a bit overzealous, but I feel like it was generally uh, in the right direction. Um, but there was this Armenian-Sassinian connection there that <laughs> always Indians. was problematic. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, Indians. Um, but in England, obviously, Sassinianism was anti-Trinitarianism uh, or anti-Trinitarian in its core. And that was problematic from the start. And that's why Parliament actually commissioned Owen to write against mm. them, even though Owen, you can tell in his work in Vindicae Evangelicae in uh, volume 12 of his works, he is ticked off that he's having to deal with these people. He's ticked off that he's having to write about this because he sees it as so basic and fundamental to Christianity uh, that these people are denying these things. And, and he, um, so he, he sort of goes all out uh, against them. Uh, but yeah, it was basically the anti-Trinitarianism of the Socinians that really pushed, pushed Owen to write about it. Yeah, and Cecil, I mean, the Socinians are from, I think, originally Eastern Europe, and right. have, I think in origination, they are, like, originally anti-Trinitarian. They're, yeah. Um, so they, they arise as a heretical group, at least historically defined as someone who does not affirm the Trinity and the Nicene Creed. Whereas Arminians, I feel like, are, they're really a, a part right. of the Reformed Church. It's an entirely yeah, exactly. different category. Um, in my, at least in my view, an Arminian is a Christian with whom I disagree. Yeah. A Socinian is someone who's not even publicly identified as a Christian because you can't, you don't confess the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, in, in baptism. Right. Yeah, in and uh, to be do. clear, Owen, Owen goes after the Arminians in display of Arminianism 
over the issues of providence, predestination, and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, he goes after the Socinians over the anthropomorphism problem, the, uh, their doctrine of God. Uh, so, I mean, it, it is very clear that Owen, what in these two different books, uh, his targets are different. Yeah. So just well, I think it's helpful to note, as, there's this historical difference, and I feel like sometimes in the theological discourse today, if uh, it's just really easy to make a kind of an us versus them comparison in modern categories. But a modern right. day Arminian is essentially a reformed heritage person. It was a different view of how essentially grace and providence work. Right. Um, and that, yeah, de- definitely. And you can see that with Owen too. And uh, he is viewing them as the Sassanians as outside the camp. Definitely. Oh yeah. Um, as opposed to his, his work on the Armenians. Uh, so, okay. So let's kind of, uh, as we're kind of flying to the end of this, uh, our conversation, I think it might be useful too, to kind of expand a bit more on some of the influence of Aquinas. So it's, you know, the, the pure act is there. You have infused grace, mm-hmm. but there's also, and a little bit, of, well, I, we didn't really talk about this. So, so what about Trinitarian theology? Uh, right. Does he have a sort of, you know, uh, substance and three purse like is all that kind of stuff there as well that would be an Aquinas yeah it is absolutely and he what's interesting is that Owen is very traditional as far as the Trinity his his greatest influence was Augustine uh, and so in his Trinitarian theology he follows Augustine very closely and where he would be um, closest, I mean, you know, he makes great use of the filioque and is very focused on the work of the Spirit proceeding from the Son as well as the Father, and thus leading us into communion uh, with the Son and the Father. And so his his Trinitarian theology is very traditional in that regard, and, and probably probably more dependent on Augustine, but he still uses uh, Thomistic uh, categories there as well. I think some people, I don't know if accuse is the right word, to associate Owen with a, a view of the perichoresis that is, uh, seems to imply tritheism in God. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, let's just, I'll make, the, I'll make the question start for fun. Is uh-huh. John Owen a tritheist social Trinitarian person? It's funny that you asked that because my brother and I wrote and presented a whole paper on this at ETS this year um, on whether Owen's relationship with social Trinitarianism. Uh, long story short, no, he's not. Uh, but he, he sort of almost pushes the boundaries in his work on communion with God to the point where you, you would not be blamed for thinking that uh in some ways and i really feel like he he's he always goes back to his traditional definitions traditional categories even where he pushes the boundary some uh and wants to talk about the father alone or the son alone or the spirit alone as he does in on communion with god he still always comes back to those traditional categories and so he, it may be innovative in the way he, he talks, but he ultimately would come down on the side of, of traditional classical Trinitarian theology. 
Uh, so for, according to Owen, is there one will in God? Yes, absolutely. And so what, what might it mean for the son to actualize the divine will as the son for Owen? Well, I mean, that's the real question as far as how to deal with uh, the Trinity, isn't it? As, as far as uh, looking, for example, at Christ's baptism, where you uh, hear the voice of the Father, the Son is being baptized, and the, the Spirit in the form of a dove coming down. Um, uh, you see all three persons there, and does that mean that uh, there are three wills? No, there doesn't. That's not what that means. It, what it means is that the, the one will of God for the Son is to be baptized at that point, for the Holy Spirit to be manifest in the form of a dove, and for the Father, for the, his voice to uh, come down, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, um, so I think looking at it in that way, uh, that's sort of where you have to come down. Uh, and that, that's really what Owen does. And he, he deals with that very explicitly, particularly mm -hmm. in, in talking about the Pactum Salutis. Um, and, and that's the way that he, um, he speaks of it. And he speaks of the one will of God with respect to the work of the Father, with respect to the work of the Son, with respect to the work of the Spirit. And so the Pactum Salutis for him is something that occurs in, a, in the eternal will of God, or is that something that occurs in the economy it, it's directly related to the economy of salvation and it's it's pre-temporal but it is something that is tied to the economy and he is he, he takes great pains to deal with that question of the one divine will and very clearly comes down, look, there is just one divine will, but this is what's going on here. Okay, so then that kind of relates to the, maybe the last little issue here is in terms of Christology, um, so he does see that the, uh, that the word of God became human, um, mm -hmm. and this is part of the, uh, the economy of redemption, part of the pactum salutis accomplished, I suppose. Uh -huh. what, what is this Christology? I mean, is it, is it purely Thomistic? Is it unique in any way or what is he doing with it yeah his two works on christology are uh, very powerful the uh christologia or the work of the person of christ and the glory of christ and he as far as his actual definitions of the incarnation he's very thomistic and follows thomas almost to the point of uh, quotation, uh, hmm. but he uh, also uses that. He talks about the importance of the person of Christ in the Christian religion, and that's what's unique about those works is that he um, talks about how important uh, the person and work of Christ is to, to all of the Christian life. Uh, and to all of uh, the Christian religion in, as far as practice and faith in him. And so I, I would say, again, going back similarly to what he does with the Trinity, he is very traditional in his definitions and his understanding, but sort of the way that he applies it is very innovative and connecting it to the Christian life 
sort of making the point, look, if your life is not centered around uh, the person of Jesus Christ, God and man, uh, that's a problem. Hmm. So uh, that's sort of what he does there. Well, let's then kind of move the, uh, you've kind of said these kind of interesting things about his theology and it's maybe helpful moving. What, um, if someone wants to get into John Owen, like, uh-huh. so where do they kind of start? And then as a follow-up, uh, talk about, I know you published at least one book on, on Owen. So maybe right. talk about that book a little bit. And if you have anything else coming on in the future, you can tell us too. Yeah. So uh, my book is Thomism and John Owen. It was published by Ashgate in 2013. Uh, Ashgate was purchased by Rutledge. So now it's, it's published by Rutledge. And uh, unfortunately, it's very expensive, <laughs> but uh, it is available online. Uh, and that was my uh, PhD dissertation um, edited for publication. Um, I would say in addition to uh, my work, you definitely want to uh, look at Carl Truman's work on Owen because he, right. he really has done the best work on Owen of anyone. Uh, his books, uh, John Owen, Reformed Catholic, Renaissance Man, and claims of truth are really the gold standard. Uh, also, you mentioned Crawford Gribben. He has two excellent books out fairly recently. Uh, one, uh, an academic biography, uh, John Owen. Uh, let's see. I had it written down here. Um, yeah, uh, in English Puritanism, Experiences of Defeat. And then he has a, a more popular biography uh, with Crossway. Uh, an introduction to John Owen, a Christian vision for every stage of life, which is really good. And then as far as Owen's actual works, I would just start with volume one and go from there because volume one is uh, on the person of Christ. uh, And volume two is on communion with God. I would start with those two. Those two are excellent. And they're very helpful for uh, anyone theologically and also just for the Christian life seeking to grow in grace. Um, volume three is his work on the Holy Spirit and it's 600 pages. So it's very, a very big work to go through, but it's excellent. So I would just, just start with volume one and go from there would be my advice. That's Banner of Truth that does those, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, cool, Christopher. I appreciate that. It was kind of fun to talk and we got to learn about John Owen, John Owen, the two Johns. Yeah. And uh, both of whom I think would probably provenly look to Thomas Aquinas as a a key thinker in the Christian tradition, right? John John Webster, I'm sure would. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Christopher. Uh, I appreciate your time and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too.